Praise God. Uh, good to see you this morning. Really glad uh, you were able to make it here this morning. If you, please, if you do have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 14. We will put all the verses on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can just look up front here. If you do have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it. Make sure you see it there in your own Bible. You know I'm not lying to you uh, when you read it there. We're in Acts chapter 14. I've been preaching through the book of Acts. This was uh, originally written by a man named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, another book that you have in your Bible. And Acts tells the story about the spread of of the message about Christ after Christ ascended back to heaven. Jesus came, he lived, died, rose again to pay for sin. He ascended back to heaven. And Acts then tells the story of the original disciples as they went out to then tell people about Christ. At this point in the book of Acts, uh, two missionaries have been sent out, namely Paul and Barnabas, sent out from a church in Antioch of Syria. And they're now making their way around Asia Minor in what people today would call Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, And we are now in Acts chapter 14. We'll be starting in verse 1. Let's pray before we read. Well, Father, we do thank you again just for another opportunity to join together as believers in a local church. Your word tells us that we are not to forsake the assembly or the, or the gathering of saints. And so here we are, Lord. We have not forsaken the gathering of believers, uh, the weekly gathering. And we would just ask now, Father, as we are here gathered, that you would bless us in and through your word, uh, in and through your Holy Spirit. You'd open our hearts. You'd help us, Father. You'd stir our hearts. You'd enliven our hearts, Lord God. You'd refresh our hearts. You'd help us to see Christ in the scriptures. Uh, Father, you'd help us to be encouraged and, and help us to cling to Christ in faith. We just trust you'll do these things here, Lord, and we pray these in the name of Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they, that's Paul and Barnabas, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue And spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. 
that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Amen. You know, when... uh, When Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, well, Jesus came to do lots of great things. Uh, The Bible says that Jesus came to show us the Father. He came so that when we looked at Jesus, we could actually see what God is, is like. And Jesus came, the Bible says, to save sinners. He paid the penalty for sin so that we could be forgiven. And 1 John 3 says Jesus also came to destroy the works of the devil, the human race in bondage to to sin. And and Jesus came to set us free. And we, we could just go on. Jesus came to this earth to do lots of amazing things. But you know, th- there's there's one thing that Jesus came to earth to do that many people don't know about. And what is it? Well, Jesus came to divide. Jesus said it himself. He said that his coming would divide, would split the human race. Here it is in Luke 12, 51 Jesus said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Now, you you stop and think about those verses. Jesus did actually come to give peace on earth. The angel at his birth said so, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, an eternal peace for all who would receive him by faith. But here's the thing, Jesus knew that many would not receive him, but they would reject him. And his coming then would divide. His coming would split the human race. Those who would receive Christ, receive his peace, whom the Bible calls the children of light, and those who'd reject Christ, those whom the Bible would call the children of darkness. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 10, 34. He said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Christ, the the gospel message about Christ is a sword that will ultimately divide the entire human race. Most of you know about the the Continental Divide, this line in America that that runs along the highest ridge of the Rocky Mountains. I have a picture for you here. It's the Continental Divide, and that line, as you can see from those blue arrows, that line is our country's great watershed. Water falling one inch to the west of, of that line will end up in the Pacific Ocean. Water falling one inch to the right of that line 
And unless it evaporates, we'll end up in the Atlantic Ocean. And Christ is humanity's great watershed. He's the divider. Those who receive, ultimately leading to eternal life, and those who reject, ultimately leading to eternal death. Jesus ultimately dividing the entire human race. And here in Acts chapters 13 and 14, we see clearly this division that Jesus brings. In these two chapters, Jesus causes division three different times in three different cities. And here they are up on the screen, the three divisions we're going to look at here this morning. Division number one in Antioch, division two, Iconium, and division three in Lystra. We'll start here thinking about this division number one in Antioch of Pisidia. We looked at this last week, so we'll just recap here. Let me show you quickly a map of Paul and Barnabas' journey here in Acts 13 and 14. Acts 13, they started in the east there in Antioch of Syria. They then sailed to the island of Cyprus and then sailed north from Cyprus up to Asia Minor, which is modern-day day Turkey. And at the end of Acts 13, we saw last Sunday, they traveled then another 100 miles north into Asia Minor, up the Taurus Mountains to Antioch of Pisidia. And Paul shared Christ there in Antioch in the Jewish synagogue. And many there in Antioch, received Christ by faith, mainly Gentiles or non-Jews. Here's Acts 13, 48. And the Gentiles in Antioch, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Many believers now among the Gentiles there, but others there in Antioch, mainly Jews, rejected Christ. Here's Acts 13, 45. But the Jews began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him, and they later persecuted Paul and Barnabas. Here's Acts 13, 50. The Jews stirred up persecution against them and drove them out of their district. And this city of Antioch has now been split, a division. And the sword that divided the city, the gospel. Those who received Christ, those who rejected Christ, maybe even families divided here, as Jesus said, three against two, two against three. Jesus, humanity's watershed, light and dark in this city now. And the pattern that we'll see here today, the darkness often then persecutes the light. It it happened there in Antioch. Those who rejected Christ, driving Paul and Barnabas from the district, from the city of Antioch. Jesus causes division in entire cities or in entire countries. We've seen it recently in, in the country of China. The gospel message of Christ penetrated China years ago. Through, through missionaries, Hudson Taylor, many, many other missionaries, many in China then receiving Christ, the, the Christian church in China just exploding at that time, but others rejected Christ, the gospel dividing, light and dark, and the darkness in China now is persecuting 
the light. Unbelievers in China recently imprisoning Christians, driving out missionaries, attempting to drive out Christ. And that's the same thing that we just saw there in Antioch. That's division number one that we see in these chapters, this first city divided by Christ, this Antioch. And division number two now, the second city divided is Iconium. And we just see the exact same pattern here. Here's the map again. Acts 13.51 says that Paul and Barnabas now left Antioch and they traveled about 90 miles to the southeast to Iconium. It's a very rugged location, this, this city. It's about 3,300 feet in elevation on a mountain plateau. Strabo, the Greek historian at this time, he described this region as cold, as bare of trees, and a scarcity of water. But, but this city of Iconium was a very important city. It lay along what was called the Imperial Road. This, this, Roman, uh, um, uh, this, this important Roman road. And, and the city itself was a, a culturally mixed city. There's just access uh, to many ethnicities there in Iconium. And Paul, now that they're there, he does in Iconium what he does in most new cities. He heads to the Jewish synagogue. And there was a reason for that. I mentioned last week that Paul had originally been trained as a Jewish Pharisee, a rabbi. And, and Paul now, going to these new cities, he most likely, very shrewdly, would wear his Pharisee robes. Because a traveling rabbi in a synagogue would often be asked to speak. And Paul would then have an opportunity to share Christ, which he does here. If you look at Acts 14.1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And then now in Iconium, we have many, just like back in Antioch, who have received Christ. Only here in Iconium, it's both Jews and Gentiles. This is an amazing thing when you think about it. Jews and Gentiles back in this day, they were never united over anything, ever. And they are now united in faith, in Christ Jesus. But others here in Iconium, once again, they reject Christ. If you look at verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, the Gentiles who not yet put their faith in Christ, and these Jews poisoned their minds against Paul and Barnabas. Unbelieving Jews rejecting Christ, rejecting this message and stirring up now, rousing or provoking the Gentiles who didn't, didn't yet believe, poisoning their minds, Luke says, planting seeds of doubt. It's like this whisper campaign. You ever had that? Where somebody comes up to you and they just whisper something bad about somebody else and now you just kind of think badly about that person. And that's what's going on here. These people now distrusting Paul and Barnabas, this opposition in this city. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? Well, look at verse 3. So, Luke says, they remained for a long time, speaking boldly, 
for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And man, you just stop and think about this. There's opposition in this city. And you might expect Paul and Barnabas here now to flee to the next city. There is a time when Christians should flee persecution. Jesus said so himself. He said this in Matthew 10, 23. Jesus said, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next and, and, you know, you think about that, that, that's just one of the ways that Jesus scatters the gospel through persecution. The disciples spreading, like, like in Acts 8, when Stephen was stoned, Christians fleeing then and sharing Christ along the way. Jesus just using persecution to spread the gospel. There's a time to flee persecution, but there's also a time to stand. In, in opposition, and, and this was a, a time to stand, the unbelieving Jews poisoning the Gentiles' minds, and so, verse 3 says, or because of that opposition, Paul and Barnabas stay a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. The same thing that Christians must do today at times. There is a time to flee persecution, but there's also a time to stand in that opposition, and to continue to proclaim Christ boldly. Richard Baxter was a pastor back in the 1600s, Puritan pastor. He was a man who spoke very boldly for Christ. The entire town of Kidderminster in England was impacted through Baxter's gospel ministry. And Baxter said this about the way he shared Christ in a poem that he wrote. He said, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. I, I, he's simply saying I shared Christ every time like it was the last time I'd, I'd ever do it. As a dying man, sharing Christ to dying men. Sharing Christ boldly, like Paul and Barnabas here now in, in this opposition. And, verse 3 says, God now starts working miracles through Paul and, and Barnabas. God bearing witness, verse 4 says, to the message they're speaking. And then these miracles were, were, were just proof from God that their message was true. But it doesn't matter to many in, in this city. Many here, in spite of these miracles, they still reject Christ. And Iconium now, just like Antioch, it's divided. And it's divided by Christ. And if you look at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, rejecting Christ. And some with the apostles, receiving Christ. And, and just like Antioch, the darkness here now persecutes the light. If you look at verse 5. When an attempt was made then by both Gentiles and Jews, the unbelieving Gentiles and Jews here, with their rulers to mistreat Paul and Barnabas and to stone them, they learned of it. And they fled to Lystra and Derbe. And again, it's the same thing. The darkness here now mistreating Paul and Barnabas, Luke says, harassing, insulting them, attempting to stone them. It's a, it's a mob violence. Here in the city, and, and now is the time for them to flee, and they do. And Christ and, and the gospel word has now divided a second city. 
two, right in a row now. You look back up at verse four. When, when verse four says the people here were divided, the Greek word for divided there is the word schizo. Do you know what English word we get from the word schizo? It's the word schism. Jesus just caused a schism. Jesus did it. He caused a rift, a rupture, a continental divide in this city. Humanity's great watershed, dividing even families here maybe, three against two, two against three, just as Jesus said that he would. Jesus came to divide the human race. It's division one in Antioch. It's division two in Iconium. Same pattern in both. The gospel penetrates a city. Christ is shared and the city is divided. Rejection, reception, the darkness, then persecuting the light. And we see the exact same pattern one final time here. Division number three in Lystra. Verse six says that Paul and Barnabas, they now fled they're fleeing this, this, what was going to be a stoning in Iconium. And, and they flee now to Lystra and Derby and the surrounding country, verse 6 says. And shock of all shocks, verse 7 says they just continued to share Christ. Once again, Jesus just using persecution to spread the gospel. And here's the map one final time. They fled first here, now from Iconium to Lystra, which was about 18 miles south of Iconium. And at the end of this chapter, they'll then flee to Derby, 35 miles southeast of Lystra. And both of these cities, Lystra and Derby, relatively small. Neither of them, unlike Iconium, neither of them on the imperial road. So a little more off the beaten track. One writer called them quiet, backwater towns, rustic, uneducated, illiterate. <laughs> Think a little uh, hillbilly, maybe, with these towns. Strabo, a Greek historian, again, described these towns as, as having very little regard for law, full of robbers, inhabited by Greeks and barbarians. So, Gentile cities, non-Jews, no synagogues in these two cities. Very different environments now for Paul and Barnabas. And they go first here to, to Lystra, and God instantly works a miracle. God knows how to draw a crowd when he wants to. Works a miracle here. Verse 8 says there was a man there in Lystra. He's sitting. He's crippled from birth. This man had never walked before. But verse 9 says he was listening to Paul as Paul um, obviously was, was probably sharing Christ. And this man's listening. And, and if you look at the middle of verse 9, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith, to be made well. The man, the spirit now somehow giving Paul the ability to see this man's inner faith. Verse 10, Paul now said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Legs instantly now strong. The muscles, the, the, the bones are healed. 
and he literally leaps onto his legs, first time ever, and starts walking. If you've been with us in the book of Acts for a while, you may be remembering back earlier in Acts when Peter worked a similar miracle at the temple. Also looking intently at one another, Peter says, rise, and the man leapt onto his feet. Similar miracles. And I think God is just showing that he's working in Jerusalem, where the Jews were by the temple, but he's also working in Greek areas, doing the same types of things through Peter and now through Paul. And man, you just stop and think about this, this, this miracle. It's actually a great picture of what Jesus can do for you. You, you and I, in some sense, are also crippled by sin physically crippled our body's now aging our body's now dying because of sin and spiritually crippled spiritually dead the bible says because of sin but man another reason why jesus came he came to heal he took our sin upon himself he was punished for that sin and you now receive christ with a simple childlike faith you begin to follow christ in faith and jesus heals you you begin to experience the healing right now you're no longer spiritually dead. You're spiritually alive through faith in Christ. And when Christ returns again someday, well, your healing will then be fully complete. You now living with Jesus in heaven, both spirit and body. Nice little picture there of what Christ can also do for you and me. But man, Paul works this miracle here. Jesus working this miracle through him. And it almost causes a riot here in, in Lystra. Verse 11 says that this crowd saw it. And just picture, picture, this guy's never walked. They see this miracle, the people in the town. And they probably just came running, just flocking to see why this man was, was walking. And verse 11 says they began to cry out in their Lyconian language. Paul and Barnabas probably didn't understand yet what was going on. And then they, they cry out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They thought Paul was Hermes, messenger of the gods, because Paul's talking all the time. Uh, so he must be Hermes. And therefore, Barnabas, who was probably older than Paul, well, Barnabas must be Zeus, uh, the, the, the premier Greek god. And verse 13 says, The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the city gate, he now comes to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And that's where they probably clued in. Oh, these guys are worshiping us. And you know what? There is a little backstory to what's going on here. About 50 years before this event right here, the Latin poet Ovid, he wrote about a local legend in this area. There was a legend that had been there for a while in this area. The people in this region, Ovid said, they believed that Zeus and Hermes had actually visited them before disguised as mortal men and Zeus and Hermes came disguised and they looked in this region for lodging but were then turned away a thousand different times before they were finally welcomed into a very poor little cottage by an elderly poor couple and they provided for Zeus and Hermes out of their poverty, not knowing they were entertaining gods, goes the legend. And Zeus and Hermes later rewarded this couple richly. But, the legend said, the homes of those who didn't take Zeus and Hermes in, well, Zeus and Hermes then destroyed those homes by flood. The popular legend in this region 
And it is likely that these people here in Lystra knew this legend. And they were determined that if the gods ever did visit again, (laughs) they would be ready for Zeus and, and Hermes. And these people see this miracle. And it clicks and they think it's Zeus and Hermes. And they're now basically worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And and once Paul and Barnabas realize it, they stop it immediately for a very good reason. You may remember King Herod in Acts 12. The people shouting to King Herod, you have the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod did not stop that worship. And... Acts 12.23 says that immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give glory to God. Listen, (laughs) word to the wise. If anyone ever does start thinking you are some sort of God, stop it (laughs) quickly because the Bible says that God is a jealous God and he will give his glory to no other. And Paul and Barnabas, they get it. And verse 14 says that they, they, they see this and that they, they just tear their clothes instantly. And it was a sign that they were rejecting all of this worship. And they cry out, stop. We're, we're human, j- just like you, of like nature as, as you. But you know what's happened here. Well, God has now sovereignly opened another door here for Paul to share Christ. And Paul does. I think here in this chapter, Luke, he just probably gave us a little snippet of what Paul actually said here in Lystra. Just a couple lines that Luke gave us here. A little taste of of Paul's message here to these people. But I do want you to notice something that Paul does here when he speaks. Once again, just like in Antioch, as we saw last Sunday... Paul contextualizes the gospel here. Paul, he shares truth here about God, about Christ, I'm sure. But Paul molds his message here to connect with this particular audience. Back in Antioch, in Acts 13, Paul shared Christ in a synagogue. It was a very Jewish atmosphere. And, And so Paul shared Christ in a very Jewish way. He connected Christ to the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. He was showing Christ to be the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures. But here now, in Lystra, there's no synagogue. There there are no Jews in in, in this city. And even though it's just 90 miles down the road from Antioch, it's it's a very different environment. It's, It's off the beaten track. No, no synagogue, they're, they're very illiterate. They're idol-worshiping people. They're polytheistic. They believe in multiple gods. And they're Greeks. They're Gentiles. They're, they're non-Jews. And so Paul, he shares the gospel now in, in just this very Gentile manner. He, he still shares truth here, but he molds the truth to connect with this particular audience, to this particular context. He's contextualizing the gospel. 
You'll notice if you look at what he says here, he says nothing about the Old Testament scriptures, not one word. Not that you can tell anyways, because these people don't know the Old Testament. It would make absolutely no sense to them. So what does Paul appeal to here? Paul appeals to creation, to nature. If you look again at verse 15 at what he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, this pagan idolatry. Yet, God did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And and you see what Paul's doing. he's, He's simply pointing there to God's work in creation. He, 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 he's, he's saying there that, 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 that creation is not the work of many gods, but of one God. Well, one living and, and true God, Paul says. One living God who, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And he's just saying, look around, people. Look around at everything you see in, in nature. It's created by one living God. And, and you know Paul's essentially saying here? You people know. You know. You know what I'm saying is true. Because, Paul says, God did not leave himself without a witness. No, he has given you a witness to his existence. By all the ways he's provided for you. Giving you rain. Giving you sun. Look at your lives. The rain from heaven. The fruitful seasons that you've had. Satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness and all of that, Paul is saying, all of it is proof that there is one very good, very gracious, living God, creator, sustainer of all things. And, and you see what he did. Now with this pagan and in a polytheistic crowd, he didn't appeal to the Old Testament other than, than very lightly to the book of Genesis. But he appealed to creation. Everything they could see around them. Everything that happened in their lives. He appealed to nature. Look around people. Look at your lives. You know that there's one good living God. And you know what? Listen. We learn something there that is incredibly important to know about fallen humanity. And here it is. The Bible says that every single human 
being knows. Deep inside, a deep down knowledge that God exists. Everyone, even, even in our, our sinful, our, our fallen, our spiritually blind, crippled, spiritually dead condition, the Bible says that every human still knows that God exists. Everyone. How do we know? Creation. Nature. God has not left Himself without a witness. All of creation now witnesses. All of providence now witnesses, declares the existence of of one true God. Everything we see around us in in nature, the way we see, we we receive rain and then sun that causes things to grow for our food, that that satisfies our hearts, as Paul says, with, with with food and getting gladness. The, the, the 24-hour cycle that we have that fits us perfectly as human beings, night and day, seed time and harvest, the, the, the seasons that we have, the fact that our planet is not one degree closer to the sun, which would cause everything to burn up, the fact that our planet is not one degree further from the sun, which would cause everything to instantly freeze. It's just perfect. It just works. Now, it's a fallen world. Yes, it's broken. So we don't see it working perfectly, but it works. And every last bit of that working creation, every last bit of nature that we see, it whispers deep in every human heart, there is a God, one very good and gracious, living God. And and please listen, even the most aggressive atheist arguing vehemently now that there is no God the Bible says that even the atheist deep inside knows that God exists because of creation the way things work a clear witness from God to his existence Psalm 19.1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals what? Reveals knowledge. Their voice, creation's voice, goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Creation, the sky, day and night, sun and moon, crops, animals, all reveal knowledge. Their voice, Psalm 19 says, creation's voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And what does creation say? It says there's one good living God. And you know what that means? Here's one thing it means. It means now that all humanity is without excuse. All humanity. Because we have this knowledge of God. And yet the Bible says we now suppress the knowledge. 
knowing that there's a God. And yet the human race has turned away. Worshipping now not the Creator, but worshipping His creation. So we now live under the wrath of God. This guy here, Paul, Paul, who's making this creation argument right here, he will later say this in Romans 1.18. He will say, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all in the things that have been made. So they, the entire human race, are without excuse. For although they knew God in and through creation, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark. And claiming to be wise, some of the wisest-sounding atheistic arguments, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Pause. Every human, the Bible says, a deep down knowledge of God. Psalm 19 is showing that creation is God's second book. The Bible is one book, reveals God. Creation is a second book, reveals God. Every human, a deep down knowledge of God. For, Paul says there, God's invisible attributes is His eternal power. His divine nature have been clearly perceived by all human beings in the things that have been made. And the problem then with the human race, here, here, here's the problem. It's not that we have no knowledge of God. No, the problem is that we do have this inborn knowledge of God. And yet, as Paul said there, we now suppress the truth. We create, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all these strongholds in our hearts, these lofty arguments and and opinions that we lift up against the knowledge of God. Suppressing the truth. Trying to lock it down deep inside of us. This internal knowledge of God we have. We, We know God, Paul said there, but we do not honor Him as God, but we become fools, no longer worshiping the Creator, but His creation. John Calvin said this. He said, There is within every human mind, and indeed by natural instinct, some sense of deity. Have you heard the atheistic claims that someday all religion will be gone from this earth? No way! will never happen because there is in every single human mind by natural instinct a sense of deity. That's why in the the most hidden of communities, never touched by other communities, they're still trying to find God because there's in the human heart this sense of deity. Calvin also said this, a very famous line. He said, there is within the heart of every natural man 
a seed of religion. It is implanted by God as an indicator of man's createdness. We know deep inside that we've been created by one good living God. We know God exists. Everyone does. We just suppress that truth, attempt to lock it down deep inside this internal knowledge of God. So you know one thing that means if you're here today and you are a Christian, here's one thing it means. If you end up in a debate with the most vehement atheist on this planet, you don't actually have to put the knowledge of God in that human heart. Because that knowledge is already there. It's suppressed, and lofty arguments have been raised. It's it's in a stronghold now within that human heart. But Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they're powerful in God for the pulling down of strongholds, for the pulling down of arguments and lofty opinions that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. We have powerful weapons as Christians to tear down strongholds to unlock the knowledge of God that is inside of people. And our weapons to do that, well, it's mainly the word and prayer. Those are our weapons. But they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. You don't have to put the knowledge of God in an atheist's heart. All that needs to happen is for God to tear down the strongholds. All that needs to happen is for God to pierce through the armor, through the lofty arguments, uh, the opinions, pierce into the soft center of that heart deep inside where the knowledge of God exists. God just has to unlock, just has to release the knowledge that's already there. And God can do it. And that's where Paul goes now before this crowd. Paul has contextualized the gospel. Very different back in Antioch when he preached, now to where he's preaching in Lystra. And that helps us. There's not just one gospel message that you share to every single person. Cookie cutter, da 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 You want to hit certain truths, but know that you're speaking to a certain audience. Get to know your audience. Get to know that person beside you. Get to know your neighbor. And yes, hit those certain truths in the gospel, but the Lord can show you a way to contextualize it so it can be understood by that particular audience. And Paul now, Greek, pagan, polytheistic crowd. So he doesn't appeal here to the Old Testament, but to creation. Look around, people. Look at your lives. You know there's one God, and he's really good to you. And Paul then calls them to repent. He, he, he says there, verse 15, turn, change your ways. Turn from these vain things, this pagan polytheism, to, to the one good and living God. And I'm sure Paul then connected it to Christ. And it seems here that Paul and Barnabas then stayed there in Lystra for some time. And many people did turn to Christ in faith. Because verse 20 talks about disciples in Lystra who come to help Paul after he's stoned. So there's there's many people who did turn to Christ here in this town. And you know one man there in, in Lystra who may have received Christ at this point? A young man named Timothy. Acts chapter 16 says that Timothy was in Lystra. And he may very well have come to Christ right now. And he'll be Paul's future protege. His fellow minister. Many receiving Christ here. But again, just like the last two cities, other people reject Christ. And they're now stirred up again to persecute Paul and Barnabas. If you look at 19, verse 19. But Jews 
They came now from Antioch and Iconium. So men, these hostile Jews in these other cities, they do not want the word of Christ to spread. They make like a hundred mile trek down to Lystra to find Paul and Barnabas, this mob now, and having persuaded the crowds in Lystra, they stoned Paul. Dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And man, you talk about the fickle nature of humanity. I mean, seriously, one day these people are like worshiping and sacrificing to Paul and Barnabas. And a few days later, they stone Paul viciously. They think Paul's dead. He, he's bruised, bleeding profusely lying now under a heap of boulders. It's a, it's a mob lynching. So bad, even the believers here probably thought Paul was dead. Verse 20 says that the, the, the disciples gathered around him probably to mourn his death. And Paul then inhales. <laughs> he's, he's alive. And crazy of crazy, Paul goes back into the city. And on the next day, he leaves Painful journey, I'm sure now, after being stoned 60 miles down to Derby. And man, once again in Lystra, we've seen the same pattern now that we've seen twice before. The gospel penetrates a city, Christ shared, some receive, some reject, children of light, children of darkness, and the darkness persecutes the light, and the gospel sword once again just dividing an entire city. Jesus has caused another schism, rift. Maybe dividing even families three against two, two against three, just as Jesus said. Three cities now, three different divisions. And I think the message here is pretty simple. Here it is. Jesus is divisive. He is divisive. Now, we as as Christians, we don't want to be the divisive ones. No, we want to be loving, we want to be kind, we want to serve those who hate us, love those who hate us, pray for those who abuse us, the scriptures say. We don't want to be divisive. But please hear this, Jesus in and of himself is divisive. He just is. He came, one of the reasons, to divide, to bring a sword, ultimately divide the human race. And just in conclusion, I think Jesus here in this text, he would probably say two very simple words to us this morning, just two simple words of application. One word I think Jesus would say today is this. Choose. You you choose today which side you'll be on, and you must choose. Philip Ryken says this. Jesus is divisive. Everyone has to make a choice. We are either for Jesus or against Him, And this division draws a line right down the middle of the human race. This is what Jesus came to bring, not peace, but division. And and, and just please hear me. You may be visiting this morning. I, I, I don't know. Please hear this. If you today are not yet for Christ, you've not turned to him away from vain things, away from kind of worshiping the world. You've not turned and received Christ. You're not now following Christ in faith. Please hear this. You are right now against Christ. And at some point, your decision becomes an eternal decision. Christ is humanity's great watershed. Those who receive, ultimately leading to eternal life. Those who reject, leading to eternal death. So choose today. He's done everything for you. 
to enter eternal life, choose today. And the second word I think Jesus would say, and I think Jesus would say this to those who have received him in faith. If you're a Christian today, I I think Jesus would say this in this text. Prepare. You get ready. When you share the gospel message of Christ, which every Christian is now called to do, get ready for division. You know, some may receive. You cross the pain line and you share Christ. Praise God. And you'll find hunger there at times. People who will receive ripe fruit, but some will reject or think you're a fool. They will continue to suppress the knowledge of God in their heart. They will raise what the Bible calls arguments and lofty opinions against Christ to keep that knowledge of God locked inside. And and listen, those of you who are Christians, darkness will often then persecute the light. We see it here. So even when that does happen to you, when you, you share Christ, don't be shocked. This man Paul here, he would later write this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10. He'd say this, you, Timothy, have followed, or you, Timothy, you know about my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, these three cities. And Paul then applies it and says, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So prepare for it. Man, let's go out by the grace of God. Let's love well the people around us. Let let us work together to to share the gospel. But just know that Jesus is divisive. And some will receive. And some will reject. And may even persecute. May God give us courage to stand. Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We ask you for help. We do thank you for your word that kind of cuts through a, a lot of just the, the, the riffraff we hear in our day. It just cuts through kind of the easy believism, sloppy things we, we're prone to hear about Christ and the gospel here in America. We know this is not a, uh, a, a loved word by many people in the world that Christ is divisive. But we see it in the scriptures. Christ promised I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword came to bring division. And we know, Jesus, right now you are dividing the human race. And we would just pray, Father God, now in the name of Jesus, for those we know around us who are right now rejecting, maybe those in this room who are right now rejecting, maybe you have very wise arguments or wise-sounding arguments for why there is no God. And we would just ask, Father, by your Spirit, to pierce, to pierce those hearts and, and bring conviction. Father, bring those convict- that conviction to our loved ones and, and, and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. Bring conviction by your Spirit. Father, help us to know how to use our weapons, the weapons you've given us. These weapons that are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, for the pulling down of everything that exalts itself against this internal knowledge of God. Father, help us, we pray. We thank you, Lord for your grace, for your kindness. We thank you for the eternal life that we do have in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.